Our text for this weekend's message is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. Ephesians 4, verses 20 through 24. Last summer, I was uh, speaking at a camp, teenage camp in Georgia. And the week that I was there, uh, one of the dear senior saints of our church, a woman by the name of Betty Bellamy, uh, had taken uh, quite ill. She had been battling cancer, and uh, she was, uh, I had received news that she, uh, she was not doing well. Let me just tell you about Betty a second. Betty uh, predates me here at Bethel, and I've been here almost 17 years, so she goes way back in the church. Uh, her career was as a, a music teacher, and I think it was elementary, maybe middle school, music teacher, but she really, after her retirement, she really loved to serve in, in the church. And she was one of our go-to people. So if we had something that needed to be done, uh, we could call Betty and she would organize it and get it together. She especially loved the uh, funeral lunches and uh, we'd call her and she would organize meals and food and people and make the whole thing happen. Apparently, if you can get uh, 14-year-old boys to sing on key, you're good at organizing almost anything. And so that was Betty. She loved to put things together. And really, her, la- her, her, her last years here, uh, it was her delight to, to serve the Lord and to give her time to kingdom work. So last summer, I'm at that camp, and I hear the news, and I made arrangements with Pastor Gary, because I really wanted to talk to her, but I'm all the way down in Georgia, so I made arrangements for Pastor Gary to be at the hospital, and that I was going to call her and read some scripture with her over the phone and to pray with her. So I, we had the arranged time. I called Pastor Gary on his phone, and uh, he stepped out of the room, answered the, the call. I said, hey, uh, I, I said, uh, how's she doing? And Gary said, um, she, she's, she's doing okay, I think. And about a half second after he said that, he goes, oh, she just died. Just that fast. And I remember I was sitting on a bench in Georgia, big, tall Georgian pines on both sides, had my Bible open, I think to Romans 8 was the passage I was going to read to her. And just that quickly, Betty stepped into into heaven. And even after her death, Betty continued to uh, to give. We uh, a couple weeks after she died, we uh, were contacted by her estate, and they said uh, Betty Betty included Bethel Church in her in her will, and we're going to be we're going to be sending you a check. And so it was a couple months later that. We received a check in the mail, and I will tell you, for a uh, elementary music teacher, it was a touching amount of money that she that she um, that she gave. Which, as a side note, do you have a will? Okay, I'll let the laughter fall down. That's a serious question from your pastor. Everybody needs a will, and I hope that you have one and you've taken care of things. And on top of that, is, a, is it a Christian one? Because Betty not only had a will, but she had a Christian will. And continued to give towards the things of God even after she died. 
And I knew Betty 16 years. I knew Betty and she was just a quiet, unassuming type woman in the church, quietly serving, quietly a giver. She gave her time. She gave talents, gifts that she had. She just was that kind of person. So if you were to ask me, okay, you were a pastor for 16 years. Tell us about Betty. Was she a, was she a taker or was she a giver? And the, the answer to me is so easy with somebody like Betty. She was clearly a giver. Her life was lived generously for others and for the things of God. Now, was Betty born this way? And I want you to know where I'm going with this message. Here's where we're going. That when a sinner receives the gospel of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit, through regeneration and then the ongoing transformation in our life, is turning takers into givers. Okay? Turning takers into givers. This is the work of God. This is his will for us. That's where we're going. And our text here is Ephesians 4, but we're in this series on the Ten Commandments. And so last week we were in the, on the Eighth Command, and we're sitting on this command another week here. And the Eighth Command, it's, it's very simple in the language. You can look at almost any translation. They all translate it the same. You shall not steal. There you have it. That's the Eighth Command. And we talked last week about why is stealing or taking what is not mine wrong or sin? And we saw last week that the reason that it is always wrong is that it is totally opposite of the character of God. That God is in his very nature a giver. He is large-hearted. He is generous. And he, of course, has been generous to us in the giving of his son. And Jesus has been generous to us in the giving of his life. And so God is by nature self-giving for the good and joy of others. And so therefore, anything that is contrary to the character of God is going to be morally and ethically wrong. And that is why stealing in all of its various forms is always wrong, is always sin. And we saw that picture, that poignant picture there when Jesus died at Golgotha. As it relates to the eighth command, there you have three crosses. On the middle is the greatest giver of all time. And on both sides of him are two notorious takers. He died between two thieves. And we saw in that story how the one thief continued to just rail against Jesus, insult him. He was selfish to the moment he died. But the other thief realizes something unique about Jesus and turns in faith to him and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus seeing the faith in his heart forgives his sins and says it this way, today you will be with me in paradise. Now imagine with me for a moment, and this didn't happen, but just imagine that this happened uh, for a moment. Jesus dies at three o'clock. Let's just say that before the thieves died, suddenly there's some reason the Romans say, you know, take those guys down off the cross. We don't need to kill them. They don't need to die by uh, crucifixion. We're going to set them free. Let's just say that they had done that. And so they take the two guys down and they say, all right, you're free to go. I wonder what difference it would make in these these two thieves, the experience of hanging next to Jesus on the cross. I suspect that the one thief 
who continued to insult Jesus, would go back to his lying, cheating, stealing ways. Why? Because he was selfish, right? Selfish to the core. On he would go. But the other thief, whose sins had been forgiven, who had seen Jesus die, felt the earthquake, saw the whole thing, and experienced forgiveness from our Savior, what kind of life would he have lived if he had a chance to live it after that experience? Does the forgiveness of sins through Jesus change us? Does it even change a thief? A notorious one like the thief on the cross? Indeed, it does. And this is where we are going here. And our passage is Ephesians 4, which is this whole long section that describes, in fact, in my Bible, it gives it the heading, the new life, okay? The new life, the new life in Jesus. What does that look like exactly? Like, how, how do I live out this Christian life by the Holy Spirit, post-conversion, having believed in Jesus? What, what does that look like? What ought it look like? I begin reading now in verse 20. Paul writes, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Notice, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We'll stop right there. Paul says, if I'm a Christian, there is an old self and there is a new self. The old self is the natural me apart from the grace of God. The old self is the sinful me. The old self is uh, the flesh. It is the old man. The Bible talks about that. So this is the self-oriented. It's all about me nature that all of us are born with. And Paul says here that there is something that we are to do with all of that junk and baggage and all those desires. He says here that we are to put them off, okay? Put them off. And that is, it's, it's language actually for like taking clothes, just take a garment off, okay? Like just take it and lay it aside. Don't live like that, okay? So that's the first step. Put it off. Don't live for those desires, Live in the new life that comes by the Spirit. And notice it says that the the means by this is that we are renewed in our minds. So we put off the old self. We don't live according to that. We are renewed in our minds. And to have a a renewed mind is a mind that is, is living by, thinking by, treasuring the truth, which is found in Jesus and in the word of God. So this is, this is me now as a Christian going, I want to live out God's purposes in my life. I want to, I want to see the world through the grid of truth and scripture. I, I don't want to live in this old way. I want to live in the new way. So I renew my mind and my heart. And he says here, and then I put on, and there's the same kind of clothes language. You all did that this morning. I put on my new self. And that new self is my new identity in Jesus. It is a, it is the empowerment by the Spirit to live according to purposes that God has for me. This new life. 
Now, Paul here, I think, anticipating the Ephesians hearing that and going, okay, that's really good. Thank you very much. But like, what's that look like practically? What do you mean I put off the old, I put on the new? What? What? And he anticipates that. And so he gives some very practical examples of how we do this. Notice that paradigm of put off, put on. Uh, He says in verse 25 that we are to put off falsehood. And rather that we are to put on truthfulness. That's the ninth command. That's next week. He goes on to say that we are to put off anger. And to put on quick resolution of conflict and forgiveness. That's the sixth command. You shall not murder. Verse 29 is to put off corrupt and divisive talk. Grumbling and and, uh, slandering and things that tear people down. Put that off. Put on what? Words that edify. Words that build up. Now, verse 28 is our focus then. There's the paradigm, put off, put on. Listen to what's to be put off and what's to be put on in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Okay, did you hear the paradigm? There's something I am to put off. And he says, let the thief... Steal no more. And that word there for a thief in the Greek, you, you may actually know it. It's the word klepto. That sound like anything you know? Okay. Kleptomaniac is somebody who they just got sticky fingers. They just, everywhere they go, they're taking. They just, everything they touch makes its way into their pockets, right? The kleptomaniac. And we saw last week that stealing takes many, many forms. Not just the guy that walks in the bank and says, you know, stick, stick him up and give me all your money. But includes things like kidnapping, fraud of any kind, misrepresentation. I remember uh, years ago, I was selling a car. I sold a car. This is when I lived in Indianapolis. And, and I, I sold this car. I think it was a Honda Civic. Uh, which had not produced a wife for me. I thought I would upgrade and see if it would help me. So I actually upgraded to a Sentra. That didn't work either. Uh, but so I was selling this Honda Civic that I had, and this guy, he bought it from me. So we go into my office, the church offices, and we were going to fill out the title work. And so we sit down to do it, and he goes, hey, before you fill that out, I was just wondering... I mean, I'll pay you the amount that we agreed to, but would you mind putting a lesser amount in the sale price? Because I, I got to pay sales tax on that, and it would, would you mind doing that here in the church offices? I'm surprised the building wasn't shaking, you know, somehow as he suggested misrepresenting and defrauding. And there's any number of ways that we can do those sorts of stealings, tax evasion. Idleness at work, squandering what God has given us, copying what isn't ours, cheating on tests, young people, as another example. Here's how Luther defined it. Taking advantage of our neighbor in any sort of dealing that results in loss to him. Martin Luther, Larger Catechism. So this is the stealing that we are to put off. Take it off like a garment, set it aside, don't live according to those desires. But how do we do this? Okay, what does that mean? And notice that the goal of the eighth command is not simply that we don't steal. 
What God is trying to do in our life is not to make uh, us non-thieves. Rather, there is something that we are to put on. There is something that we are to take our stealing, conniving energies and point towards righteousness. What is that? Notice, let the thief, he who steals, steal no more, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Okay, so we're, we're, we're talking now about hands, transformed hands. Is it merely a coincidence that he says to the thief that he is to do something different with his hands? Because what are thieves known for doing with their hands, right? They, uh, the five-finger discount, right? Maybe you've heard that. They, they, they take their hands and they use them in sinful ways. And Paul says, take those same hands and rather than stealing and conniving and cheating, use those hands in what he calls here honest labor to meet his own needs. And here now we are on a, called a creation principle and we talked about this in the fourth command where we were told six days shall you labor and one day shall you rest. That labor and work in the Christian worldview and in the Christian practice is inherently good. It is not a part of the fall. It was there before the sin entered into this world. If sin had entered, never entered this world, we'd still be working and laboring and sweating. We'll probably do it on the new earth someday. Work is not bad. It is, it is good. God worked six days. And we find in God's plan then that the way he set up this whole world is that we work, we labor, and then we have our needs met by the fruit of those labors. Legitimate, honest work, compensation for that work that puts bread on our tables and a roof over our head and meets our needs. And Paul says to the thief who is not about honest labor with his hands take those hands and work for it a worker is worth his wages the bible says and that's how god wants us to meet our own needs is that we sweat and that can be our literally our hands uh planting in the field or construction it could be mental gifts talents whatever it might be but our labors meet our needs. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say this. In the church, if somebody doesn't work, they shall not eat. That's 2 Thessalonians 3.10. Now, this is not talking about the guy or the woman who's lost their job, trying to find another job. They're unemployed. They're doing their best. They're trying to make ends meet. Not talking about that. This is talking about the freeloader right? The sponge. And churches have freeloaders and sponges. They see people of compassion. These people are, they're caring. I'm going to kind of move into the assembly and see what I can suck out of this congregation, right? And so they're all the time, you know, seemingly to prey on the good intentions of other people. Paul says for that person, don't give them a dime. Now that doesn't sound very Christian-like, does it? I mean, do we not just take the benevolent offering and talk about the harvest market? What do you mean you don't give any? If you don't work, you shouldn't eat. And God built into our bodies something to motivate us to work. Our appetites, right? 
And here at almost noon, some of you are beginning to think about that. So, stealing then is a distortion of that. You see how stealing short circuits that? Not only am I not using my hands for legitimate work and meeting my needs, I am stealing the fruit of other people's labor of their hands. And I am defrauding them of the right that they have to the fruit of their own labor. And so stealing then, behind stealing is a, it's a, it's a get quick, uh, rich quick kind of motivation. It's a, it's a, I'm, I'm not going to work for it. I'm going to take the easy way. I'm going to find some little scheme, some Ponzi something, and this is going to be the way that I'm going to get rich. And behind that is a desire for material wealth and possessions, and I'm going to cheat or do whatever I need to do to get it. And all of this are the inclinations of the old self that Paul says that we're to put off. I've pastored here in Northwest Indiana for a long time. And I I feel the need on this point here, on this command, at this point in our series, to talk about one particular area that is so pervasive in our community. And I want the Bethelonians to think biblically about it. Can we talk about gambling? We got the boats, we got the lotto, we got, you know, every gas station you go to, it's, it's all around us all the time. Is gambling a legitimate use of our hands or not? And if not, why not? Well, if you think about, again, the sixth or the, the eighth command, behind the eighth command, the thief is somebody who is looking to get rich Quick. They're looking for an easy way towards money and wealth and possessions. What are the heart's desire behind somebody who goes to the boats or who pulls the slot machine? Are those desires holy? Are those part of the new life that the Spirit is creating in us, conforming us to the likeness of Jesus? Or are they part of the old self that we're to put off? And I hope you can tell by the fact that I'm talking about this, I believe it's clearly part of the old self. It's it's loving money and possessions, which the Bible calls us not to love and not to covet, which is the 10th command. We'll get to that in, in, in a few weeks. And when I win in gambling, what am I actually winning? Am I not winning other people, the fruit of other people's hands that they have foolishly put into the lotto or whatever else also? I am preying on the fruit of other people's labors. Even though in our culture it is legal, we ask a deeper question, don't we? Is it ethical? Is it God's will? Is it God's purpose? One organization says it better than I can. I'm just going to read what they say about this. While the Bible contains no thou shalt not in regard to gambling, it contains many insights and principles which indicate that gambling is wrong. The Bible emphasizes the sovereignty of God in the direction of human events. Gambling looks to chance and good luck. The Bible indicates that man is to work creatively and use his possessions for the good of others. Gambling fosters a something-for-nothing attitude. The Bible cares for, calls for careful stewardship. Gambling calls for reckless abandon. The Bible condemns covetousness and materialism. Gambling has both at its heart. The moral thrust of the Bible is love for God and neighbor. 
Gambling seeks personal gain and pleasure at another person's loss and pain. So, for Christians now, putting off that old self, rather than going for Ponzi things or gambling or, you know, some Uncle Billy Bob who, you know, has a backhoe and thinks there's oil in his backyard and needs 10 grand from you to pull it off. You ever have a family member kind of have one of those ways that you can get rich quick and they just need some of your money, right? Rather than getting into all of that stuff, the Bible calls us to the legitimate use of our hands, our time, our talents, our giftings, in order to be compensated to meet our needs. That is the Christian response. But notice it doesn't stop there, okay? So it's not just the hands that God is looking for. Again, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. And here's the rest of it. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So it's not just hands that God is looking for, but it is also our hearts. Because you see then in that, so that, that we are called not simply to meet our own needs, but to be prepared to meet the needs of other people. So if you leave here, for example, you leave here and say, okay, that was a great sermon. Pastor Steve knocked it out of the park. I am going to walk out of here and... uh, you know, if I find a lotto ticket, well, then maybe, but otherwise I'm not doing that. And I am, I am going to, I'm going to work hard at work tomorrow and I'm going to, uh, not steal anymore from my employer, my parents, my government. And now I'm fulfilling all that God wants from me because I don't steal anymore. You are, that's a half obedience. And it's only half the blessing that God intends for us. Because if, you know, if you go to Lake County Jail and you gathered up all the guys that are in there for burglary or something like that, and, uh, I mean, if you, if, if you could just say to all of them, don't steal anymore, which right now they probably are open to that idea, uh, we wouldn't call that a, a Christ-honoring congregation because they no longer steal. Or if you leave here with all the greed of the, of, the, of, the, of the guys in the Lake County Jail and you simply apply that now to being a clockmaker or a shoemaker uh, or whatever your employment is, now it's just greed expressed in, in lawful ways. God is not trying to make us into successful materialists who don't steal. There is a whole nother level that he is seeking for us. And it's the whole matter of a life of generosity. Do you see it there in the text? I'm not making it up, right? Why is God doing this? What is the goal in this? So that we might share with those who are in need. Remember, God's goal is to conform us to the likeness of his son. And so the spirit to do that has to break in our hearts this love that we have for this world and the things of this world. The lust of the eyes, the, 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 the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, as First John says. He's got to break that from us so that 
the grip we have on things might now be freed to be generous and to be giving to meet the needs of others. So that's the goal. And since preaching is one of the means by which God sanctifies his church, it means that a faithful preacher is going to at times need to talk about your money and your possessions and the desires of our hearts behind them. And I aim to be a faithful pastor. In fact, one guy writes this, I like it. When people ask us what the difference is, we simply respond that Christians give. I think many times what happens is that we teach stinginess by default. We are so afraid to talk about money and touch on issues of giving that we've taught people they can be deeply spiritual and not be generous. In many ways, we have communicated that how we deal with money is irrelevant to our spiritual lives. And yet the testimony of the Bible is the opposite of that, right? That money is indexed to our hearts. That if I want to know what I really love or who I really love, I can look at what I do with the things that God gives to me, how I spend my money, what I live for, the accumulation of things, and I will know more than anything else what and who I really love. Because money, Jesus said that, right? Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Treasure, heart, heart, treasure, treasure, heart. They go together, okay? One follows the other, okay? So that this is the F-16 fighter. Here's the wingman. They always go together, right? Here is money, here is heart. They always go together. Did you like that? (laughs) Maybe that's helpful. Money reveals character. Paul is not saying here that thieves quit stealing, give money, go to heaven. That's not the gospel either. You can walk out of here and never steal another thing and end up in hell just like any other real thief can as well. The gospel is not that we are generous so that we can go to heaven. The gospel is that we are generous because God has been generous to us in Jesus. And since he is conforming us to the likeness of his son and Jesus emptied himself and gave himself for us, That one good fruit of genuine salvation is that my heart changes towards things. Now, I married a woman who loves Les Mis. And uh, what can you say about that? It's just... It's called miserables for a reason. Uh... (laughs) So I have been exposed to the soundtrack, the Pandora channel, the uh, recently released movie of Les Mis. So I'm not an expert on it, but I'm getting there. Uh, And basically the storyline of Les Mis is that you have a thief who seeks redemption in his life, in his later life, by 
showing kindness to the orphaned daughter of a former employee. That's basically the the plot line. And by the end of the whole thing, uh, it suggests that he has now lived a life of such goodness that he has been redeemed. Or you can take from that that uh, to go to heaven, you have to sing everything you say. Uh, Which is just another form of hell, actually. Uh, But my wife loves it, so I'll stop further critique uh, of it. But that's the gospel according to the world. And so you have all kinds of rich people that are donating money you know, for causes, their names are on buildings, their names are on plaques, and they're invited to the fancy uh, banquets and such. And so uh, that's the gospel of the world. But the biblical gospel is the opposite of that. I, I am not being generous for the needs of others in order that I might in the end be saved. It is not a condition of salvation, but the effect of it. It demonstrates that I get the gospel, that I have understood the love of God to me in Jesus and the the very real sacrifice of the father giving his son for my salvation and the son giving his life for my salvation. Now I am a recipient of a salvation that I have done nothing for and to receive that and then live a life of fevery and loving the world is the contradiction of somebody who has received a salvation that is utterly by grace. So I show that I get the gospel and the Spirit is doing His work in my heart when I see that my hands are doing legitimate work and my heart is strangely having compassion sufficient to actually give of my stuff to meet the needs of other people, especially their eternal needs. Which is why Christians always have a particular heart for kingdom work and gospel work. And this is, always goes together. I think an example of this is Zacchaeus. If we just talk about Zacchaeus a second. You may know Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector. He was like executive vice president of the Roman IRS. A Roman IRS that didn't care how you went about getting the money as long as they got the money. And so the whole system was corrupt, and it was corrupt people that became tax collectors, and they would extort from their neighbors in town and become rich at their expense. But the Romans didn't care because they got their money, so everyone's getting rich. The Romans are getting rich, the tax collectors are getting rich, and uh, the the people are uh, getting poor. So he is, Zacchaeus was very rich, and he was very short. We know that from the story. He's up in a tree. Jesus comes. He says, I'm going to your house. They go to Zacchaeus's house. They get there. And we don't know what Jesus said, but there was something about Jesus, his words, his life, the power of his presence being in the home of Zacchaeus, where like the thief on the cross, Zacchaeus recognizes who Jesus is. And there is a kind, there's a faith and a belief that he expresses to Jesus. In fact, let me read it here. <laughs> Tell him the story. I want to read it. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, 
The half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Tax collectors, most notorious takers, possibly in history. And yet this notorious taker has an experience with Jesus that transforms him now into an incredibly generous man. How do you go from being a tax collector, a thief, to suddenly saying, half of everything I have I give to the poor? Do you know anybody like that? I don't. And if I've defrauded everybody, not only am I making restitution, I'm multiplying it times four. Do you know anybody that does that? I don't. How do you explain from taker to giver in the life of Zacchaeus? The world would look at that and say, ah, he realized that he needed to be generous and he gave. And Jesus, on the basis of his generosity, says, now you are saved. You're a son of Abraham. And again, they would be getting it backwards. What actually happened is that he trusted in Jesus and that produced then a generosity that was the effect of Jesus, not the condition of his salvation. And this is what God does in our life as we receive this gospel, which is a free gift. It orients us away from a a living for, loving, treasuring, stealing, if necessary, things in this world and orients us towards a life of generosity for the needs of others. Jerry Bridges says it this way, three attitudes we can take towards possessions. The first says, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. That's the attitude of the thief. The second says, what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. Since we are selfish by nature, this is the attitude that most people have most of the time. The third attitude, the godly attitude says, what's mine is God's, I'll share it. Now on that matrix, where do you see your life? In fact, take a moment. I'd like you to think about the most generous Christian that God has blessed you to get to know. Okay? Who's the most generous Christian? And by this, I don't just mean financial. I mean like just their whole life of, of generosity. Can you, can you have a name come into your mind? Maybe a face? Just take a moment. Think about it. Now, I'm going to guess that you probably don't know that much about their money or how they handle it in the details. But you do see something very special about them. They have a kind of magnanimous spirit about them, don't they? There's a certain something that they exude and you you come into their life and there is a generosity of relationship where they are actually interested in you am i right okay they ask you how you how things are going they tell you they're praying for you they want to know more about the hurt in your life the trial you're dealing with there's a large-heartedness, and they're hospitable to you relationally. They may have been hospitable to you somehow in your life. They opened their home. They let you use their car. They uh, made arrangements to take care of you in some 
way that touched you. They do these things generously because they don't view their time or their things as ultimately theirs. These are things that God has given to them to steward. And now they're free to bless you with them, right? You've been blessed. That's why they came to your mind. They've blessed you in some way. If you were to look behind the scenes in their life, you would probably find quiet, faithful, generous giving to God, loved ones, people in need. They're probably hard workers, and they're really great employees. And they do this uh, in a wise way with the things that God provides for them. They don't waste very much. They can't because they don't see it as their stuff to waste. This frees them to give to others to meet their temporal needs, but their greatest joy as a Christian is to give to help people with their eternal needs. Anybody coming to your mind? And am I close in why you see them as being generous? Now, I want to tell you about somebody in my life, okay? Somewhere around 15 years ago, I began a friendship uh, with a guy named Dr. Wilbur Williams. And Dr. Williams is a longtime professor at Indiana Wesleyan University, professor of Old Testament there. He is also an archaeologist and for 40 years has led tours to Israel. Over 150 groups he has taken on tours to Israel. I think I've been there on maybe five or so of them myself. Wilbur is in his 80s. He, uh, over the years, has been professor to over 17,000 students. That's a lot of students, right? He continues to this day, even in his 80s, with a full teaching load. He has taken a salary from Indiana Wesleyan University each year of $1 for 40 years. He takes no salary for his Israel trips. He leads them personally. He has personally paid for legions of students to go on these tours, so they have the privilege of seeing uh, and studying there in Israel. He, he's won the professor of the year at Indiana Wesleyan like so many years. They should just mount it in his office. Quite a guy. Now, these are all things you can read online. It's all public knowledge. I'm not telling you anything that isn't available with a simple Google search, but I want to tell you about my personal experience with him. I have been blessed to know him personally. Um, and in fact, we have a photo, I think, of me and him here. There. In, in case you're wondering, he's the one on the left there. <laughs> and for some reason, and I do not know why, he likes me. He does. He just has taken a liking to me. And I like him as well. And over the years, I mean, so many examples of the generous spirit that this guy has. Over the years, I, uh, for example, in, in my single years, I would write him about, you know, dating challenges or loneliness or something like that. And, you know, I'd write him like three uh, sentences. He would write me like pages of response. Now, this is a guy who's got 500 students that he is professoring every year, and he takes time enough to write these books back to me of advice 
fatherly, grandfatherly type advice to me about life and marriage and ministry and all the rest. I was touched by that. I'll give you another example of this. A few years ago, we scheduled a Steps of Paul tour here at the church. And uh, this was going to be kind of a long trip. I can't remember, maybe two, maybe three weeks long. And uh, we made arrangements for Dr. Williams to be our the leader of the tour. Well, there were some problems, and I don't remember what happened, but there were some problems. The number of people that signed up was low, and there was some issue with the tour company. And uh, the trip was in some jeopardy, but Dr. Williams said, we're going and I'm doing it. And uh, on the tour, he explained to me, he actually took his wife along with, paid her full way himself. And on the trip, uh, he said, you know, the only reason I did this is because I love you. I remember when Jennifer and I got married, we wanted Dr. Williams to be a part of the ceremony. And so we said, hey, we're getting married August 25th. Can you be a part of it? He said, I wouldn't miss it. Well, then later we discovered that this was not an easy thing for him to say because our wedding was in the morning. But that same day, there was a banquet held in his honor eight hours away. Now, Wilbur's in his 80s. And... uh, So he came in on Friday, was a part of our ceremony that morning, got in the car, drove eight hours to the banquet in his honor. Now, I don't know about you, but if there is ever a banquet in my honor, I'm getting there early. I want to savor every aspect of that banquet in my honor. But he said, no, I'm going to go be a part of that wedding, and then I'm going to drive eight hours, which is a quite a long drive, to be a part of that as another example of him reaching out to us. His wonderful wife, Ardelia, suffers with Alzheimer's, and I've watched him care for her over the years. Few people in my life have more modeled generosity to me than Dr. Williams. And I'll give you another example of this. A few weeks ago, I wrote him and I said, hey, we haven't seen each other in a while. He goes, I'll come and see you. Now, he lives near Muncie. And this morning, he and his wife got up, drove all the way here, and are sitting right there. Okay? And... They've driven these like two and a half, three hours, or at that stage of life, five hours, (laughs) to attend this service and have lunch with us. And then they're going to drive all the way home. Who does this? Very large-hearted, others-oriented, generous people whose lives have been touched by the gospel is who does that. And I'm here to tell you, I would trust him with every penny I have. I would have no problem if he had all my boxes of unused checks, if he knew every password for every account, every file on my computer. I have no fear of him knowing all of that. Why? Because his life, he is not a giver. 
He is a trustworthy, I'm sorry, he's not a taker. He is a trustworthy giver. (laughs) It's been so beautiful up to that point. (laughs) And we look at the eighth command. We look at Ephesians 4, and it can just be words to us. But behind those words are Christ-like lifestyles that God forms in our hearts to conform us to the likeness of his son. And it is such a beautiful thing when God does it. In fact, I'll tell you, some, year, uh, some, some years ago, I made a decision in my life. If you, if you know, DeWitt is Dutch, okay? DeWitt is Dutch. And when I came to pastor here, I had no idea that I was actually moving into a fairly large Dutch community in Northwest Indiana. So pretty soon we had Dutch people around. And so you start joking about, you know, Dutch and cheap. And, and I would joke from the pulpit even about that. And um, I decided some years ago, I'm not going to do that again. And if I slip up and do it, forgive me, but I don't want to do it again. And the reason I don't want to is that I don't want by reality or perception to be known as being cheap. I want to be known for generosity. I want to be known for large-heartedness because God has been large-hearted towards me and Jesus. And I know that this is what the Spirit is forming in my life. And my dear brothers and sisters, I know that this is what the Spirit is forming in your life as well. And we have to work at it because the world draws us towards loving and hoarding. And God wants us to be blessed by giving ourselves. It is more blessed to give than to receive. To be like people like Dr. Williams, and even more importantly, generous like our Savior, who being in the very form of God did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being found in likenesses of man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. This gospel that we love and treasure is generosity towards us and will through us do the same. Let him who steals, steal no more. But let him experience the joy and the blessing of generosity. May that be a mark of our congregation. Amen. Amen.